Hi, I'm Ewan. Welcome to the podcast. This week is all about Legends Live, and we're going to be joined by Barry Lucas, who has been instrumental in the history of Lancaster's rock and roll scene. Uh, where he was a music promoter at Lancaster Uni, he's going to be talking about some of his experiences today. We're also going to be talking about the book that he has written when Rock went to college, but all the bands and all the contacts and all the experiences that Barry had whilst he was working for the student union and also as a music promoter as well. Hi, Barry. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Ewan. How you doing? All right, all right. Welcome. So, first of all, the book that you got here when Rock went to college, where can people pick up the book? Where can they read and find out all about experiences? Well, sadly, <laughs> it's running out. Um, we've uh, only got about a dozen copies left at the moment, wow. but it's available through the publishers, which are Carnegie at Scottforth. So this new edition of the book, uh, which came out uh, about 18 months ago, we couldn't sell it, because it's a fairly small run, we couldn't sell it through uh, the usual bookshops on that. Um, Canforth, actually, Canforth Bookshop sell it and Carnegie are the only two places that, it, that it's available at. So online and in that bookshop in yeah. person as well. Fantastic, yeah. cool. So in terms of that whole time, because it's very difficult to kind of summarise, you know, several years, decades whilst at the university, what would you say in terms of your time up there would be the standout moment of that whole career and experience up at Lancaster Uni? Probably the last couple of uh, of years when we were getting acts that no other college could possibly get and see. Um, you know, we had um, Van, Van Morrison was hadn't played for about eight years anywhere. He came back to do six or seven shows in Britain and said, mm. the only criteria he's got is they can't be stand-ups and they can't be colleges. And we were a college stand-up yeah. venue and he played there and he, he was so enjoyed the concert he told Mick Jagger to uh, the Stones have got to play Lancaster and actually the story in the book they should have played Lancaster yes. but we couldn't fit them in because it was an annoying thing like university finals got in the way of a rock and roll and the Vice-Chancellor didn't quite understand the importance of rock and roll as opposed to getting a degree. And at the same time, we also had Eric Clapton on and we had Tina Turner on. Who yes. Sadly died. Again, not playing any of the universities at all. Mm. Uh, so Lancaster became a major venue in its own right. You were an undergraduate, weren't you, at Lancaster? Yeah. What, yeah, yeah. what kind of drove you into that path then to become... A promoter or was that kind of a happy accident? It it, it was really a happy accident. Well, mm. it, it yeah, because most people you would think, oh, I would guess most people would think, oh, you went to college, you went to music, you wanted to. I wasn't. I mean, I was into music in the same way as every eighteen-year-old in the sixties was into music. Yeah. Of course, you were, but I had no intention of working in the music business or anything like that. But I stood as an undergraduate in my college, which was Lonsdale College, elections as social sec, because mm -hmm. a friend of mine was standing for Boland, and he said, well, if we both stand and we get elected, we can pool the resources and put on bigger acts. So yeah. uh, in those days, entertainments was treated in all colleges as the same as the athletic union or yeah. political societies. They were given a grant, that's your money, go out and lose it in the year uh, and you'll have done your job. Mm. So we had, I think it was £350 each um, to, to spend on a concert. So we put them together with £700. We dragged another college in, so we had £1,000. So we went and booked the Who. 
uh, which is, I know it's still, I mean, 19 years old and I'm booking the Who and sat with Daltrey and Townsend and Heath Moon in the dressing room chatting yeah. away. And that, it was just bizarre, really, when you think about it now. And we then moved on into Pink Floyd, Black Sabbath, etc. all that in that first year of doing that. And we made money. Um, yeah. So the student union said, hmm, every other college in the country is losing money over and above the grants that they were meant to lose. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. they said, do you want to? Do you want to try this out as a job? Um, so I said, well, I'll do it for a year as a sabbatical, effectively a sabbatical year, really, because yeah. I, was, I, I just got a postgraduate grant. Yeah, grants. Yeah, yeah exactly. They, they wouldn't know about grants. Well, they were a thing. <laughs> exactly. Yes. exactly. Um, but so I, <laughs> so I was basically working as a, a doing like a postgraduate uh, sabbatical role for a year, and then at the end of that, we again we'd uh, we'd made money, and the student union said. Do you want to carry on? So I did it for fifth, all in all, about fifteen years. I bet they would have recognised your ability to reach out and partner, work with people, and get together and with basically mates and get together, pull your your budget together, and get bands together. It must have really have caught the attention of the surrounding town as well. What was it like with the relationship at the time with the college and the city of Lancaster, and then how did that then improve with your promotion? Well, we were quite unique. Lancaster because we had a we had a policy which was an open venue and mm -hmm. anybody could come providing mm -hmm. they had a pound note grasped in their grubby little hand they could come in yeah, um, yeah. Uh, and that we basically I can sort of understand the major major unions in places like Leeds and Liverpool and uh -huh. Birmingham and that mm -hmm. um, because the local population had other forms of entertainment they had concert they had venues concert venues. Were, were all around. Preston Guildhall wasn't open in those days. Uh -huh. Blackpool did the odd show, but yeah. it was like two a year. Um, so unless you went to Manchester or up to Glasgow uh -huh. or over to Leeds, there was nothing in the in, in that world of music or performing. Uh, was what was Morecambe part of that scene then? In terms of that, just too far away? Or no, 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 no. Morecambe had venues but they weren't putting any any major acts on they had uh -huh. been in uh -huh. the early 60s people like the stones and the beatles and that played morecambe yeah um but that that had that had ceased by the time the university opened and and, and became quite big the great hall opened in my second year so it was 1970 okay. so i was before that any of the events we had to do was within the refectories so yeah i had bands like the groundhogs and Baker Broughton and bluesy, bluesy, rocky bands and folk bands were, were we did in 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 the refectory with like two couple hundred people, and then the Great Hall opened, and the first concert was with Fairport Convention, which I wasn't involved in because I hadn't been elected. I got elected in that that February of that year. Uh, was was there already inroads with these bands? because well, I mean, or did you and your pals kind of just get together and think we're going to go out on the phone, and if you don't ask, you don't get. Yeah. How, how did all that kind of come about? Well, you see it now sometimes when you look at the, the, the band's touring date, sometimes you'll get, yeah. a, oh, I didn't know there was a venue there or something like that, uh -huh. you know? Uh -huh. Well, it was a bit like that. We we, we got the Who. and De Sorry, and Deep Purple had played that year as well, just before the Who. Wow. So, so agents in the music business in London suddenly noticed this. And of course... Look at look at it geographically. It, it's all right for me saying, yeah, the people had to go to Manchester or Liverpool or whatever. Uh -huh. But equally, all the bands playing there were then going up to Glasgow, Ed, mainly Glasgow, but occasionally Edinburgh. Yeah, you're driving past the Great Hall. Yeah, uh, it, it's the university sat on a motorway junction, Absol literally Absolutely. on a motorway junction. So dropping off to fill a date 
it's costing them no extra in terms of you know petrol and whatever going up there so it's just a free a free hit for everybody um and because we were open um we we were getting big crowds quite quickly yeah um, it's a bit of a myth about students and live music and it's even more so today um that that great hall was probably there were odd bands which were different which more mm. student orientated bands tend to mm. be folky bands but in general terms of rock and roll 60 65 percent of that audience was non-lancaster university students right. doesn't mean to say they weren't students because yeah. a lot were sixth form colleges and and you know mm. techs and things like that uh, art schools and things which are all around the area um and they used to run coaches there as well so you know. Brilliant. And did you find that then other other areas would come in, other unis, and when they sort of got the the the, the noise that there was going to be a big band that there wasn't in, in their own city? Did you find that as well? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, and what what's amazing, uh, and what was what was what I couldn't get across to the university authorities, is how important it was, uh, the in terms of student choice of where they were going to be yeah. educated, yes. because we had the university marketing department did research. On why students chose Lancaster, ten mm percent -hmm. mm -hmm. because it was a collegiate university, which meant that it was broken up. Although it's yeah. collegiate on a campus, but they thought yeah. it might be more less, less big, less intimidating, might be more friendly. Mm -hmm. Ten percent where it was, mm -hmm. um, sat on the edge of the Lake District. Um, ten percent for the actual courses. Um, so I wanted to do. English there, or I wanted to yeah. do marketing there. Sixty percent because of the concerts. Yeah. They went, they came. It's amazing. I mean, this is uh, this is three or four years down the line when the concerts were really established, and and we were getting the major world's major names, and people like Queen were playing there. You yeah. Know, then, so we um, we ha I got loads of people that have spoken to me. Bought the book, talked about it. Said we chose Lancaster because of concerts. So Amazing. you know, it, the, the university administration wouldn't recognise it. The academics certainly wouldn't have rec wouldn't recognise it. Yeah, exactly. Um, but that was the case. And you've mentioned the Who a couple of times. And can you remember anything specifically about that gig that really stands out? I mean, you made over a grand, I think, wasn't it, on that on that gig? But, well, the the thing that really stood out was. Um, well, two things. One is they had the scariest production manager I've ever m met in my life. He's bald-headed. He's called John Wolf. Oh, dear. Which was an apt name. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and um, he, you know, I, when I was talking to um, the band in the dressing room, I, I once I said, oh, God, he's, he's scary. He's so intimidating. And... and Daltrey, Daltrey <laughs> sorry, yeah. said, oh, no, he's all right when you get to know him. And Keith Moon packed up, yeah, he's been with us two years. We don't know him yet. So he's <laughs> told me. But they were all staying in the Royal King's Arms, and it yeah. was the height of the Vietnam War. Oh, Lanca wow. Lancaster, a lot of American students um, there, JYAs, junior year abroad students at, um, at Lancaster, and they'd organised an all-night vigil in um, Market Square in Lancaster. Uh -huh. So... The concerts in those days went on till two in the morning. So mm. the Who had finished, got back to the hotel about about two, two thirty, got the porter to make all these sandwiches and coffees and teas and that. And um Dolce and Townsend 
wheel the uh, the porter was really chuffed. Oh, he's making sandwiches for the who? No, it wasn't. They were we they wheeled them all down to uh, to Market Square, sat in the square with the American students, and there was a lot of British students there as well, uh-huh. and dished out teas and coffees to everybody, and sat talking for an hour with them um, about the situation. Well, yeah, it'd be <laughs> nice to think it would still happen today. <laughs> Absolutely, I know everyone's so well protected now, and of course everyone's kind of fearful now yeah. of like that bridge between audience and artist yeah. can yeah. sometimes be difficult to to bridge. I suppose maybe social media has played a, mm. a part in that somehow. Yeah. In what way did because um, I know punk was obviously a big thing around that same time as well. Did that play a, a main feature in the university? Did they? How it was I know it was kind of rock and roll, but did did you ever find it there was a thirst or a taste for punk, or did you always find that was on the no, same. we we we. You did the Sex Pistols as well, didn't you? Well, yes and no. We 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 did virtually every punk band with the Ramones. I mean, some of those punk ba- some of those punk bands, they were called punk bands. Uh-huh. It was pretty obvious they were going to be mainstream. Punk gave a lot of artists a, li- a quick a quick leg up. Um, uh-huh. So the Stranglers, yes. Blondie, yeah. Boomtown Rats, but we had the Undertones, we had the Clash, the um, Buzzcocks. You know, we we had every punk band on. I must admit, I had a record shop in Lancaster. I co-owned it with um, Nigel. And and one night we was a di- punk was just started, and we were sat around a big barrel that they had yeah. as a as a table in the Slip Inn, which uh-huh. is I don't know what it's called now. It's one of the, is it an Irish pub or something now? But the Slip Inn by the Market in Lancaster. Yeah. And there was t- there was about five of us sat around, and we were discussing us. punk, and you know can't play their instruments it's just a wall of noise you can't make what's the the, the lyrics it, it would never last mm. and i remember saying and i just said hang on this is what the man our mums and dads told us about the beatles yeah and the yeah. stones so you know yeah. and we had a, a, a guy who worked for us called malcolm young probably youngest member of staff who was really into punk uh-huh. and um he he forged the shop in that way um it was new to people of a certain age but punk was happening and punk was fantastic and uh-huh. all those acts were, all those acts we had on there were great the one that didn't happen was the sex pistols and that was my fault because we did have a date on that tour but by that stage the violence was just getting out of hand oh, um, right, okay and they, each concert was just a stand-up riot basically uh-huh. there were gangs from barrow preston blackpool Lancaster Mockingwall was sort of meeting up as, as an excuse for a punch-up. So mm-hmm. it was disintegrating. And it wasn't massively popular with students at the time either. Punk. Right. Um, so it was easier to How did you it. Did you very much listen to the audience then? Did you did you follow their tastes or did you, was there any kind of risks that the, you sort of took at that point? Oh, there was, no. I, I'd always believed that, that my job was to entertain people mm. it wasn't to educate people right yeah i wasn't the kind of promoter who browbeat to say you know you must like this because it's good and i'll uh. make you listen to it um basically that i was criticized quite heavily at the time among students because i wasn't putting on they called it student bands student bands and yeah bill taylor who is now sir william taylor it came to point he was the secretary of the student union he said oh i got me a bent last night about these people wanting student bands. He says, what What are student bands? I said, oh, well, Bill, they're bands that nobody really wants, nobody's heard of, nobody really wants to see, and when you put them on, nobody comes, and they cost you a lot of money. He said, we well, don't want to put them on. So I said, no, that's why I don't. Yeah. I, I was putting contemporary... It was underground in the sense that you, your mum and dad wouldn't have heard of some of these artists, 
Mm. But all the teenagers would have done, you know. There were occasionally, when I pushed it down people's throats, um, I'd been to see the first ever show in London at the Marquee Club with ACDC, and I was knocked out, so I got a chance to have them on that first tour, so I had them on. Um, lost of lost money because we only had five hundred people there. So I, and I, I thought this is ridiculous. This is this is a, such a good band. So I booked them again the next year. Mm. A little bit more money, not a lot more money. But I thought, well, by now everybody will have seen them. people. The five hundred who were there will have told all their mates. We're going to get an audience. This yeah. Well, we did. We got about six hundred, and I lost even more money the second time. <laughs> so if I could have them on now, it would probably be better. Um, so yeah, occasionally I was I was putting stuff on that I that I. I knew was good quality, but, yeah. I, um, but generally I was putting things on that I knew people would buy tickets to see, mm -hmm. wanted to see. When I was sort of reading through the book and get some of the stories, you know, the, it was really, really clear that it was a group of you that came together who had like minds, who kind of loved music, loved entertaining people and wanted to bring bands to audiences. And I just wondered, were a lot of the audiences kind of into those bands already or was it kind of you just captured the mood just at that right time? My booking policy, per, not a policy, but what I, how I booked bands. Like yeah. Obviously, once once we were up and running, yeah. you would get agents phoning you wanting to put bands in. Like, I, you know, every band that toured wanted to play Lancaster. Mm -hmm. Even some of the some of the really big monsters wanted to play Lancaster. There was one Dire Straits tour, which had six dates at, at Wembley and five dates at NEC and Lancaster University mm -hmm. were the only places they were playing. Wow. So... It became, but in those back in those early days, in the in the early seventies and that, if I was offered a bat, I had. As a reflection of the demographic of the of the audience, I had nine ticket outlets stretching from Penrith down to Preston, Bolton, Blackpool, Lytham, you know, mm. all round basically. Mm. Uh, Barrow. I would phone them up, yes, yeah. and and most of them were record shops yes. uh, in those days, and said. What do you think? You know, especially if I like the band, I do it because it, you can yeah. it can colour your judgment occasionally. You know, so yeah. if, oh they're they're good, everybody will like them because I like them. So I used to actually phone around and say, "What do you reckon?" and and you know, take a sort of. Yeah, feel, the barometer. Yeah. yeah, that's fascinating. So you had uh, a network of record shops that you just kind of just phone around anyway, or you kind of knew people that worked in there? How, how... No, no, well, they were my ticket agents. Oh, of course, right. Were, Who, I had nine ticket you... agents. Nine ticket agents, there was eight record shops. There was one which was George Edwardian Boutique in Kendall, because they didn't have a record shop there. Edwardian Boutique, wow. Yeah, no. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Think of some of the bands that could be using that. that yeah, those are your yeah, fits. Yeah. yeah, amazing. All I did was phone them up and say, oh, I've been offered such and such. What yeah, you know, what do you think it would do? And they might mm. say, oh, no, not that, but whatever. Some will say no, but if the majority were saying, oh, yeah, they'll do all right, we'll sell tickets for that, then I'd go. Because I wouldn't do that unless I'd got a gut feeling it was it was right, yeah. you know. Yeah. I was just double-checking my, my own um, opinion on it, you know, my own fit, my own instinctive feeling. Promoting you know, a lot of it was about instinct. Uh -huh. It was about... I really fancy this one, you know, kind of thing. That that will work. Who's been the wildest band you've ever booked? Wildest in what sense? In the sense that you could tell when they arrived. The Clash, probably. There's very particular stories that you could uh, echo from the book. Yeah, the well, the, the, we. <laughs> I told this story when I was being interviewed on uh, BBC Radio 6 with um, 
uh, Liz Kershaw, uh, and it got censored out of the interview. It didn't happen. Uh, they had a, they said it was a live interview, and there wasn't. There was a time lapse on it. Anyway, um, share all that. Yeah, it was um, for the first edition of the book. Um, I blame the Ramones for this concert, and it was when we were doing the launch of the book in the Great Hall, and at the end of it, Jeff Campbell came up who did most of the photographs. He was my assistant. Did most of the photographs in the book. Um, he came up to me and said, you know, you're blaming the Ramones for that incident. And I said, yeah. He said, it wasn't the Ramones. I said, what? I've been telling that story for 30 years. Uh-huh. I said, no, no, it was the clash. It was a, it was the same week. What had happened was that they, they'd got a, a food company, catering company, on the road with them. And it was early doors. That wasn't happening much. They used to give you a rider and you got the sandwiches and things and they wanted a room to set up as a restaurant and backstage at Lancaster is very restricted it got two dressing rooms and basically that was it but there were music department rooms so I'd said to the porters I could, can we use the music the rehearsal room there and he said no I said, he did, um, I said look I'd really need to set this room up for them so they can eat oh god alright so he said okay he said but you know there's lots of equipment in there I said look, they're musicians mm-hmm. they're damaged musical equipment that was silly the next morning at 9 Nine o'clock in, in the morning, uh, I got a phone. I lived in Lancaster. I got a phone call saying, uh, "Will you get up to the Great Hall immediately? The Vice Chancellor wants to see you." So, no. So I got up there, and he was with Dennis McAldam, who was the director of music, and they were in this rehearsal room with a, I think it was a seventeenth-century harpsichord in there, which somebody emptied a powder fire extinguisher into, and generally trashed this room and. Um, I said, look what this band had done. And I stupidly started to say, well, how do you know it was the band kind of thing? And then I looked up above his head and it had got, um, riffs are for men, melodies are for puffs. And I thought, oh, what's the bill? Send me the bill, we'll yeah. get it paid. And to be fair, the promoter said, oh, idiots. What had mm. happened was one of the clash who had got serious um, drug drugs problems um, and actually... That was probably his last gig. He got thrown out of the band either that day or within a two or three days. It was just out of his skull backstage. And he, and the band had said to Jeff Campbell, um, who, who was head of the stage crew at the time, said, get rid of him, just throw, chuck him on the bus or whatever. Mm. So we, um, he, he frog-marched him off. And actually, the bus driver didn't want him in the bus. He said, put him in the luggage hold. Right. <laughs> he was in such a state. <laughs> Um, so uh, for years I'd been blaming the Ramones and the Ramones and Jeff said the Ramones were so nice he said they even cleaned the ashtrays because they weren't, didn't want to create work for the cleaners in the morning you know so I said wow. oh so I do apologise in the second edition uh, unfortunately <laughs> there's not many of the Ramones left alive to read it but yeah. the life of a promoter was that kind of an easy transition or was it or was it something you felt you had to battle hard it sort of evolved because there was a there was a there was a, a committee, a social committee, which is all the social sex from the six at the time, six colleges, yeah. eight, eight colleges, mm-hmm. um, and then I gradually, well, myself and Gaz Taylor gradually as, assumed, you know, the best committee is like two given. two people, one of whom is permanently on a holiday. Yeah. If you want a decision made, and so so it, it, it evolved in that way, and, and the college and the student union then grew in nature because when I was first appointed the student union was quite the, the college presidents were the powerful people yeah the student union didn't really exist in anything other than sort of name and then gradually student union ended up running the whole show so yeah the, that happened okay it, it it was very it was very good as a negotiating tactic 
with agents and that because uh-huh. I was sort of saying I'm not pay- I'm not paying the same money as these other colleges. It's my job. I've got to make a profit mm. to justify my existence and mm. pay my wages. Paul Lowsby became a very good friend of mine. But he was the lead social sec at the time and he'd just started and I was giving him a bit of advice and everything about. We were negotiating with an American band and um, they'd come in to me at 1500. I phoned Paul up and said, I don't want to pay 1500. So he said, well, I'll go on. So he went on and said, "Um, I'm not paying 1500. Leeds is the the premier student venue, uh, you know, who live at Leeds and John Martin live at Leeds. Mm. So I'm actually got it down to 1200 so he phoned me back so i got it down to 1200 so i went back on and said um i've heard the leads are only paying 1200 i said i'm a professional here i've got to earn money i, mm. I can't be seen to be paying more than the college so i came back so i phoned him up i got it down to a grand so he went back on anyway yeah. with this conversation went on we both got it for 750 in the end which was half the price of the quality of the colleges at the time so did you and guys have to work quite closely in terms of Changing the the hearts and minds of the presidents then, or was it quite easy to do once the senior was successful? Most, most were, most were okay. Yeah. Most uh, were, because especially in the 70s, it, uh, it, it, the student unions were far more political. I was sort of centrist Labour Party, yeah. so I was sort of okay in their eyes, but I was a bit, a bit, old-fashioned in that sort of sense. But because you had Trotskyist presidents, I had, you know, communist presidents. Mm-hmm. Most of the Labour presidents were sort of left of a Corbyn Easter's in, in today's yeah. terminology. Yeah. But we got on okay. Entertainments was something, it was a bit of bread and circuses bit, you know, if uh-huh. people were being amused, that was okay. Yeah. Um, it got difficult towards the end because we got a, a couple of executives whose presidents, they were the, do you remember the, the um, Social Democratic Party, which SVP, yeah. well, they weren't easy to work with. Um, and that's one of the reasons I left in the end, because they were getting more and more in wanting to close the, the, the concerts down so st- non-students couldn't attend. The Sugar House, which oh. was which I'd opened, took mm-hmm. me eight years to get that place open. Mm-hmm. And it was meant to be for the local population and the students mm-hmm. to mix socially. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a whole raison d'etre to me. It wasn't yeah. a student club at all. Yeah. And in fact, all they've done... by so, but they wanted to turn it into that, and I was getting to the stage. Well, you know, this isn't working out, so I resigned. Mm-hmm. But of course, what they've done, turning it into a social club, is actually the antithesis of of, of the whole game. It's, it's it's actually compounded the problems the university have got mm-hmm. now with that dislocate between up on the hill and in the town yeah. centres. Yeah, because people still see that as a student venue yeah. very yeah. much so. but it is. I mean, it, yeah. it is now. Just, no, you know, mm. it was, we, we had it open. You mentioned the Sugar House. I was going to ask a few questions about the Sugar mm. House in terms of what was the... I mean, you were, you were saying about trying to join the idea of Lancaster and town together. Um, what was the process for when you opened the Sugar House then in terms of the, 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 that work about? Well, the, in 1972, there was a, a thing called the Craig Affair at Lancaster where David Craig, an English lecturer, and a couple of other lecturers, they were accused of bias in their marking. So anyway, the whole thing blew up. Lancaster ended up um, setting up an alternative university and half the staff went with the students um, and agreed to teach. Panorama came up and did a whole one-hour programme just on Lancaster, mm. the student unrest. And at the end of it all, it, it, it was bound to collapse eventually, obviously. Um, but we'd occupied University House and all the teaching departments and that. 
But um, then Lord Taylor of Blackburn was um, given the, was commissioned to investigate what had gone wrong, what this what had happened, why was why was this unrest? And one of his one of his um, findings, one of his chapters, was the fact that the, the dislocate between the students and the local people. Right. And remember, by that stage in the by that stage in the seventies, most students were on residence. So it was only those who wanted to be off. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. When I came, all first year students were off campus for mm -hmm. their first year. Right. But they tried to get everybody on campus eventually. But all you could, I mean, I play for the university cricket team. I was meeting students in the summer term who had never been to Lancaster. Mm -hmm. They spent a year at Lancaster University and mm -hmm. never been off campus. It was just scary, really. And his idea was that he set up a social centre for the young people of the area and for students to mix. It took me eight years to eventually get that. I, and, and I say me, it was me and student presidents. But obviously, yeah. student presidents are there for one year. They wouldn't have seen it through. There would have been a drop-off somewhere along the line. And this isn't going to happen. It was only that I was a member of staff. who was, I thought it was really important and kept on pushing it. So we got it. It was the old it was Sugar House Alley, and it was the old architect's department from this from town, right. town council, Lancaster City Council. Was there a fluidity with the audiences between both venues, mm. or did you mm. find it very much the the gigs up at the the campus? was, you know, predominantly lots of out-of-towners. Did you find that was still the same in the Sugar House as well? I wanted to open, the similar to the Hacienda in, in um, mm. Tony Wilson and I talked about it because it, it was happening at the same time. And we were both interested in, obviously, discos being the, uh, I don't know, the, the bread and butter, the, the mm. thing that you base it on. But we both wanted to put music, live music on mm. because Hacienda's legendary now, yeah. the bands that they put on. Yeah mainly because of Tony and, and the factory records thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But you look back at the acts that we had on in the Sugar House at that time, um, you know, we had people like Eurythmics, like mm -hmm. Simply Red, like Stone Roses, uh, Grandmaster Flash, um, you know, I mean, the whole string of major acts. Most of them at the time, well, sorry, the major now, most of them yeah. at the time wouldn't have filled the Great Hall because people, people, I mean, it's strange to say, but we had got 60 people to watch Eurythmics. Because mm -hmm. people were on campus were saying, oh, I'm going to Eurythmics on Sunday night. Oh, no, I, I went to Eric Clapton last week, and, and then Tina Turner's on in two weeks. You know, so it, I saw it as complementary to the Great Hall. It, mm -hmm. I could put on bands that I knew were going to be big, mm -hmm. or I got contacts with that, that were going to make it work, that would die a death in the Great Hall. It's no good for anybody in that situation when you've got, you know, 150 people in the great in the great hall is more of a stage the fact that students wanted the discos it probably helped the the once it got established those those bands were established in there to 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 get some of those on i mean we did a lot of comics yeah the only comic i'd ever done in the great hall was billy connolly because he was he was a rock and he was you know harley mm. goldsmith was, was promoting the tour he was rock and roll uh, you know the first yeah. rock and roll comedian really but you know we, we had ben elton we had the young ones Rick Mayle himself doing shows, Lenny Henry, wow. um, all in the Sugar House. Complimented to your audience as well as forging brand new audiences and experiences for them. Yeah, I mean, but I've always done that. I always did yeah. that with a great hall because I, 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 I got to the stage sort of halfway through that period was thinking, hang on a minute, I'm meant to be putting on entertainment for 5,000 students here, okay, and the local people, but, you know, part of my raison d'etre is to put the entertainment. 
5,000 students aren't all interested in rock and roll. Mm. There must be other things. So mm -hmm. I ended up doing film nights. I ended up doing brass band concerts. Uh, Gilbert and Sullivan. Um, I had Gilbert O'Sullivan as well. But Gilbert and Sullivan, we, um, we did um, Arts of India nights. We did um, Stommy Mashta, the great Japanese percussionist and thing. You know, um, so it, so... I was widening that. I did a, a snooker tournament, uh, not tournament, exhibition in there with John Verger and um, Terry Griffiths. And oh. Verger had just won the UK Championships that year and Terry Griffiths had just won the World Championships and they were playing each other sort of as... Then they were playing local uh, local guys with um, Maureen Flowers and John Briscoe, um, yeah, mm -hmm. you know, for darts in the in the sugar yeah. house, things like that. You know, so it, it, yeah, I was trying to widen what the concept of entertainment. Mm -hmm. Tell me about your foray that you were going to be um, a manager, about the idea that you were possibly going to manage or missed out on managing David Bowie. That was well. That was um, Gaz Taylor, who was. Who stowed for Boland, as mm. I said earlier, um, and and I ran that first year together. And at the end of the year, they the student union offered me. I mean, Gaz was the guy in the hat and the, stood on stage. And what do you want next week? Oh, right, I'll get you the Bob Dylan, and mm -hmm. I'll get you the Rolling Stone. He he was the front man. Uh, I was the administrator, and the student union. I mean, I didn't realise at the time. Must have recognised this, and they offered me the job as opposed to right. Gaz. So. I see. It caused a rift between us, quite, quite understandably. Yeah. So Gaz stormed off, got graduated and stormed off to London. We played in the same five-a-side football team as well. Uh -huh. So um, he he went off to London, and um, a few months later, out of the blue, I got a letter from him saying, "I'm running a bar in London at the moment, and I've got a flat, and mm. the guy in the next door flats uh, is looking for a manager." And I told him about you, and he'd be interested in meeting you. And, I said, well, what, what is he? And he said, well, you know, he's a pup, he, he does puppetry and, and mimicry and he's a bit of a folk singer. And, oh, and I thought, oh, God, no, going around night, going around pubs, pub back rooms at 30 quid a night. And, uh, no, I've turned it down. But soon after that, he had a hit record. Um, um, and his name was, changed his name to David Bowie. Uh. So, uh, I could have been on what that. could have been at all yeah. on that train? Yeah, and that could have, that Caribbean island I go and visit now could have been mine. <laughs> <laughs> Someone wanted now to be a promoter. What would you think would be the challenge now for a promoter compared to when you were? The the, the hardest job is finding a venue. Yeah, that is really the hardest job. Um, I mean, I was lucky in the sense that the venue was provided for me, so mm -hmm. I just had to put the axe in it. But there's some interesting things happening in, in this area now. Um, the cantinas yeah. got some really good acts in yeah. the last few weeks, mm -hmm. months rather. Yeah. The the old Carlton, you know, the Alhambra, I went to see it with a friend of mine who promotes the Nice and Sleazy Festival. Mm -hmm. um, and he wanted to look at it. He said, I'm looking at this new venue. They've done it up. So we went in and I knew the Carlton from old and it. As soon as you walk in, you thought, this is a rock and roll venue. This mm. is perfect. And they had a really good light system and sound mm -hmm. system in there. Your biggest problem is the venue and the size of venue. Oh. That's the problem. Because to get people to travel, you need an act which is going to generate that kind of interest where people will travel. Otherwise, you're sticking at around the 300, 400 mm -hmm. mark. 
like the platform is 350 isn't it yeah 400 on a good day um the you know the the winter gardens now with this extra money and they open up the balcony mm. um they'll probably get over a thousand which you know you, you've got to really be in that kind of figure to get acts that are going to warrant people mm. traveling and paying a higher ticket price your promotion costs are roughly the same mm-hmm. whether it's a a, a a tribute band or whether it's a main star you know mm-hmm. your pa your lights your advertising your tickets your stewarding etc is all the same is the same costs so the biggest thing is is the band's price now i used to lecture f- um, for nus to new social sex and and i used to say look you risk less money paying the artist £10,000 than you do paying them £750. And they all look blankly at me. Mm-hmm. What I meant was, yes. you know, everybody wants to see that artist who's paid £10,000. You can charge what you want. If you've got the right art, act, you can charge what you want, as, yeah. as is seen now by, yes. the, by the cost of going to see a major star now. Yeah. You talk about hundreds of pounds. Yeah. <laughs> you know, mm. look at festival costs now. I mean, mm. it's, a, it's a foreign holiday. Absolutely. Of a ticket. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, so... If you've got the right thing, people will pay the money. Yeah. If you've got the wrong thing, you can give the tickets away and people don't turn up, mm-hmm. as I've found to my cost occasionally mm-hmm. in promoting, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's finding the venue and the right size of venue mm-hmm. um, is, is, is the biggest problem I think people have got at the moment. Yeah, I see. And also the threat to even small venues, grassroots yeah. venues as well, you know, in terms of yeah. where do those bands start? And yeah. so, I mean, ultimately, there's, there's the option of online and then broadcasting to an audience. And obviously, there's been many many stories of of, mm. of artists musicians who've come through purely by you know gigging from home using mm. their own situation mm. as their own venue and of course that has its strengths and weaknesses i would imagine i can't remember any incident when i ever gone to see live music and not enjoyed an aspect of it you uh-huh. know i might not have enjoyed the band it might have been rubbish but the bass player was good yeah or, you know, yeah the drummer was good or the singer was good mm. or something mm. and it helps the beer go down, doesn't it? You yeah, know, I mean, yeah, it, yeah. it's that kind of social social situation. Absolutely. Um, the sad thing is, of course, if you're a venue, I mean, the costs of venue, you know, if you, mm. most of the most of the sort of small live music stuff is pub based now. But if you're paying a band, yeah. even you know, a couple of hundred quid, which is nothing, but actually, it's a couple of hundred quid more you've got to take on your beer mm. to justify it. Mm. I mean, I don't just mean £200 profit on mm. that beer, so it's probably 500 quid bar take more on that Saturday that you would have taken by just opening the, your doors in order just to break even on putting yeah. a live act on. Yeah. So it, it, it's, it's diffi- it really is difficult for venues at the moment to, to, you know, to justify it. If you're a promoter, it's slightly different. But as a promoter, where are you going to make your money? You're going to make it off bars and catering. You know, because that's how most people, yeah. you, you look at the promoters, not so much in the sales, but certainly in festivals and things like that. Mm-hmm. If they break even on their ticket price, they're, they're, they're happy because they know they're going to make bars, catering, car parking, all that kind of stuff. Big money's made in those. I feel very sorry for young artists and bands now because there was a pathway. Um, there's not that pathway there anymore. Mm-hmm. But everybody needs to play live. I understand that actually you can't break through in, in terms of stardom like you used to be able to just buy grafting away in clubs, pubs, colleges, city halls, etc. But you've still got to do those clubs and pubs. You've still got to 
yes. interact with a live audience, yes. I think, to make it work. To really sort of test yeah. your metal yeah. and test yeah. your craft. Yeah, yeah. I suppose yeah. I say anyone could put anything out there online, mm. but if they've never tested it live or in no. front of an audience, yeah. they're never going to know if it's going to be no. good enough or not. No. What kind of skills and qualities do you think a good promoter has to have? You need to be organised. <laughs> you need to not panic. I mean, I do say in the book at one stage, because... I actually like a situation where, where something's going wrong and you have to think and react quickly. I yeah. mean, it, it's a nightmare when it's happening, but you get this adrenaline buzz, you know. And I was doing a show down on uh, the Isle of Wight with Madness a few years ago, and um, the licensing people were sort of saying, "You can't get, you can't open the door." So I said, "Why not?" There was some something wrong with some of the some of the uh, fencing and that. The guy who was putting the money up for the concert and me were putting this fencing. and got it all done. Thank God for that, that was close. He said, God, if I'd realised you were worried, he said, I'd have been panicking. <laughs> he said, I've never seen you worried before. I said, yeah. well, um, so you've got to do that. You've got to love putting on live events. That's mm. the bottom line, is you've got, that, you've, got, you've got to get that buzz out of, out of an audience at the end of the night coming mm. out and they're, they're laughing, cheering, whatever it is. That's, mm. that's why. I used to watch the first number of acts and the encore of acts, so how they went onto the stage mm. and how they left the stage. And, and I mean, occasionally I'd watch the, con the concert all the way through, but very, very rarely. So just how do they make that dramatic effect on the audience at the start and how are the audience leaving? What's the state they're leaving in? And, that's, that's what's... and if somebody wanted to become a promoter then, in terms of those who've got passion for music, can see gigs, can see bands that have an effect on audience, do you reckon that's a real yeah. key factor? Oh, yeah, 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 definitely. Good example is, is a local one with Massive Wagons. Massive's, I heard their first album on CD and to me I thought it's it's all right it's you know it's a bit just cliche went to see him live and was knocked out and they've just got better and better and better and they're winning over slowly by playing but they have to play all these you know yeah a, a, a lot and that wins over so you can do it the old-fashioned way mm -hmm. people will say oh no I saw this band da, 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 and tell mates and then you know if you if you interrupt music, you know your friends are interrupt music, and everybody else is that yeah. kind of thing. That, yeah. that kind of old fashioned social media. Yes, the word of mouth. Exactly, <laughs> yeah, exactly, you know, exactly. Um, can work for you, but it does take time. That's the other thing. Yeah. The other problem you've got, if you if you talk about just starting cold as a promoter, mm. is it takes you a while to build a venue up or mm. to build. A festival or whatever you want to do it's mm. going to take you in the case of so something like a festival i always used to tell local authorities who were doing it you're going to spend three years losing money then you'll start making money yeah. and then it'll be easy but of course most people in that situation with local authorities have one bad year first year and drop it all oh yeah. we can't do that lost money and yeah. i said yeah but that lost money should be spread over 10 years because that's what you're hoping, fully, hopefully, you're trying to do. Candle yes. Calling is a yeah. similar one. Candle yeah. Calling is exactly. started with, I think, there's something like 1,500 people. That's the first, it. first one in the Central Candle. Absolutely. I was going to me mention them next. Yeah. I remember meeting them actually 10, 15 years ago, those promoters, and they were they looking for four to... copies of my book. Fantastic. Was good. Mum and Dad used to come <laughs> to my, my oh, shows. Oh, really? Because <laughs> they were looking to start something similarly in Morecambe. Yeah. Yeah. And at the time, me and my colleagues were, yeah. This is this is good. They've got the kudos. They've got the credibility. They've got the connections, and at the time it wasn't on the radar. It, we were just told no. Mm. But somebody I know quite well, John Giddings, who does the Isle of Wight Festival, mm. he 
resurrected this, the Arawak Festival because it, it, after the chaos of the one in the late 60s where people yeah. broke down, the, you know, music should be free, man, so they broke everything down. That Your plumber should be free, your electrician should be free. Um, so he lived on the Arawak as well, worked in London, but lived on the Arawak, and he wanted to resurrect it, and he got the local authority involved, and he said, I want you here for three years, I want you to help me three years, and then I want you to go away, kind of thing. And they had the foresight to see that actually that's how it should be, you know? Yeah. And so the first year, I think he got two and a half thousand people there. Next year, he got about 15,000 people there. And he got about 25,000 people there. Then they walked away mm -hmm. and he got 60, 70, 80,000 people there. Mm -hmm. And they're there for a week. Mm -hmm. They spent probably several million quid on the island. So the local authority in that situation have done exactly what they should do for the businesses in the local area. Yeah, yeah. You know, and you look at what's happened at Lytham, Scarborough. Yeah. Scarborough's no different to Morecambe. And uh -huh. yet it's, all got, it's, it's got about two weeks of the world's biggest stars on mm -hmm. you know so mm -hmm. it can be done yeah but you need the local authority to have the sense and the foresight and the bravery <laughs> to do it 100 percent. Like that vision to be able to to re yeah. recognize the benefits that that will bring yeah paul mccartney did a surprise concert in lancaster enemy new musical express which was uh -huh. you know a, a gospel for for people when people used to read newspapers um, three weeks of um, double, three, two, three, four pages each week on the history of the Beatles, starting yeah. from the beginning to the end. And it ended when with sort of Shea Stadium, where they played it. They shut New York City that day so the Beatles could land at the airport and all that. It was just unbelievable. When people say today, oh, the new Beatles, you're going, get, get away. Mm. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm not a massive Beatles fan, but yeah. <laughs> they were something that has never been seen before or since. So after Shea, they realised they couldn't play live ever again. So McCartney had said to the others, why don't we just go out as a little band playing in a village hall on a Saturday night, charging 10 bob, 50p, um, and when the locals turn up for the, for the Saturday night dance, the Beatles are on stage, you know, why don't we do that? And mm. Apparently Ringo was up for it, but Harrison and uh, Lennon had no chance. So and it, I thought, I've got a rag ball coming up at the end of Feb. An agent that I'd, that I'd been using in London called June Wayne, she'd been around a long time and I'd booked acts with her, Chuck Berry, sort of old acts um, in that sort of sense. And I said, can you get to McCartney? And she said, well, yeah, I used to book the Beatles out back in the day. I said, well, I've got this idea. I've got a rag ball up. It's just form wings. He wants mm. to get play live, but it doesn't, he said. And then he had the, and I explained this idea. And I said, well, why don't you go to him? I said, look, I won't bill him. But they'll appear on the, they'll just turn up and play at the rag ball. Anyway, I never heard anything back. So I didn't expect anything really. Well, I did. It would have been a nice, but I didn't expect it. Then on rag week in February, I got a phone call from June on the Monday morning saying, your McCartan date's on. And I went, bloody hell. So I, I went up to check on the the and the hall. I don't know why I went to check up on the hall um, with a booking thing, just to double check that the Friday was all right and there was no problem. Yeah. Came back to my office and my a guy who was helping me uh, doing the finance on the side of the concerts and the gigs and that, Alan Murray, was sat in the behind the desk and said, "These two guys are Wings Roadies and they want to play here tonight." And I went, "And there's two guys in denims and long hair and everything." I said, "No, nah, no." Nah. I said, "No, it's Friday night." And then. No, it's tonight. And I went, oh, hang on, it's rag week. I said, yeah, right, Where, where's the band? Oh, they're by your all, great all. So 
so I went along and there's Denny Lane and Paul McCartney and Henry McCulloch and Linda sat with baby in arms and they're playing football yeah. on the grass and so I went oh, bloody hell so I went into the great hall and the porters were setting out all the chairs for a classical music concert the next night I said to Sid and the head port, I said, you're going to have to stop this. I said, why? I said, just stop putting the chairs out because they're big, heavy wooden chairs. Oh, right. They, they took all the ex-army people, so all the porters are in their late 50s, early 60s, and they're having to lug these up from the basement and everything. So I said, oh, yeah, yeah. And he said, oh, go away. And what's that effect? And, and I said, well, hang on a minute. Any minute now, Paul McCartney's going to come in those doors. And, he's got, and he said, yeah, of course he is. And McCartney walked in and he yeah. was... He was he could have charmed birds off trees. He was really he, oh he was you were the two guys I'm giving heart attacks to then and they went like, oh yeah so, <laughs> so they well, sat on the stage chatting with Sid and that and Mick and uh, said well oh, that's nice all this what do you usually have in here and he said Sid said oh we have proper music none of that rubbish that you lot play <laughs> <laughs> it's like classical music normally that's what's in here what was it like when he walked in the door there was just complete disbelief or yeah well uh, John McCartney all the others were just sat outside it was a nice yeah. nice day I don't know why they were, uh, anyway so it was just McCartney in there Yeah. so that was all so, so he stopped doing it I said well look leave the chairs out mm. because you know I mean I've got I've got this was what I don't know. Eleven o'clock in the morning. It was at six or seven o'clock that evening. How yeah. am I going to get an audience? You know, yeah. so I had to. I phoned up a couple of record shops and tickets and said, "This is on." You know, but I mean, you know, I think it was a Monday. So who goes to a record shop on Monday afternoon? No, they don't. So I couldn't get it out there. I yeah. mean, social media now it would be easy. Yes. I couldn't do it, so I just got a megaphone. I was walking around campus saying, oh, tonight, Paul McCartney and Wings are playing in the Great Hall. It's 50 pence. Uh, and people are going, oh, go away, it's rag week. I mean, I even got on the bouncers there, a thing, and they said, hey, this is really good, isn't it? So it's 50 pence to get in, and, and then, what, we charge them a quid to get out, do we, for, for rag? And I said, no, hey, you, you could put a PA up in. This is an elaborate one, isn't it? Yeah. I said, will you stop it? Paul McCartney and things are going to play it. The other problem is that it was the minor strike was on, and the general secretary of the student union and the treasurer were, were putting on a thing in, in um, Bowling College refectory yeah. yeah. to raise money for the minor strike. Gray was from Normanton, and he was an ex, his, his, his son of a minor and all that sort of stuff, so it's a dear to his heart and he grabbed me and said who the bloody hell is going to come to watch a Manchester rock and, little rock and roll band the Beatles are playing 100 yards away in the hall and I said, I said well I can't. he said hey, I, want, I want to see this McCartney I said oh god because he's a bat he plays rugby league and got me playing rugby league in right. Gray so like I said no great honestly no, I'm going to go and see him so I introduced him and so Gray sort of explained delicately the situation and McCartney said don't worry you'll have an audience so then we go did the show they repeated several numbers obviously because they, they only had about 45 minutes of numbers they didn't really have a full set and was on stage with them obviously and then at the end McCartney said uh, right you lot sorry we've run out of numbers now we're going to have to finish but some mates of ours brilliant band are playing in Bowling Refectory. Now, we're all going down to watch them, so we hope you lot... I've got 1,100 people there, which I have no idea how I've got 1,100 people Because remember, that back in that day, there was only about two and a half, three thousand 3,000 students at Lancaster. Yeah. It wasn't a big... It took us, poor old Gray and Bill, I sat there on the door, and suddenly 1,100 people walked down <laughs> thinking the Beatles are going to be in the yeah. Bowling Refectory, so they're snowed under. So they got their audience... Yeah, McCartney. Obviously, McCartney didn't go. He just got in his mini mini bus and uh, 
he uh, he took Alan and uh, my girlfriend at the time, Rachel, took took the money to him and said, "There's a, I mean, and then he took money out and then give the rest back." Said, "Put it in the miners' fund." Um, oh wow! So he got. Remember at the time he was being a bit political at the time. Okay, yeah. he got give Irish back Ireland back to the Irish and things like yeah. that. But the best part of that story um, was this little rock and roll band from Manchester, semi-pro band. Who one of them? Had, one of them had taken the day off work so they could come and set up. Had arrived at the Great Hall, um, or just arrived at the car park, walking over over to the Great Hall, and saw these some guys playing. Because I was talking to him afterwards, and he says, "Well, I walked up, and I walked up, some other guys playing football." And I said to them, "Do you know where Bowling Refectory is, mate?" And and they said, "No, we're we're we're, we're strangers here. We don't know the place." He said, "Oh," he said, "I'm in a band, and we've got a gig tonight at Bowling Refectory." So. Um, this guy said to me, um, in a Scouse accent, he said, oh, we're in, a, we're in a band as well and we're looking for a gig tonight. So I said to him, I said, I tell you what, mate, I'll have a word with the social sec, he said, and I'll see if I can get you on supporting us. So he, uh, he said, and then this guy looked at me and smiled and said, that's really nice of you. And then I looked round and I thought, that's Henry McCulloch. <laughs> that's Denny Lane. <laughs> this is Paul McCartney in this funny suit that I'm talking uh-huh. to. So uh, anyway... So that was that was um, quite a night. Oh wow! And that. and Linda, because obviously you mentioned her earlier on as well. She was getting quite a lot of negative press. She was. Time, it, she? it was. Yeah, she got. I mean, she she got terrible negative. You know that. I think a lot of people were blaming her for breaking up the Beatles. Right. Um, and then it, then they blame Yoko. No, it's funny how they blame all these. People. I know exactly. I mean, how, um, how did you find her? I thought she was great, and she was a really, really nice. There won't be many men who said they had a semi-naked Stella McCartney in their arms, will there? You know, no, because <laughs> I, I, I had to nurse her at one, yeah. at one stage. No, she was lovely. She was really, she was really, really nice. A good businesswoman, put it like that. But right. she came over as quite, quite, quite a nice person as well. Contrary to what the press she was getting. It's such a shame how they sort of vilify, especially women in in associated with artists, or they yeah. they, they definitely do yeah. blame them. Yeah. For. Well, it, it's funny, isn't it? If a, if a woman's a competent business person, yeah, they're they're hard and unpleasant and nasty. Yes. Uh, if a man is, he's had to be admired. You know, Absol- it's, it's, absolutely it's weird. Absolutely. So Barry, just remind us again, where can we get when Rock goes to college, or when Rock went to college? I should say. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, it's when Rock went to college, because when Rock goes to college, yes. to play on words, was a BBC Two programme in the 70s, uh-huh. uh, or late 70s. Um, yeah, which, uh, it's available from Carnegie um, Publishers. Uh, you can buy it online, and um, there's not an awful lot of them left. And I'm not yeah. sure there's going to be another lot run off. So um, ah. we've, we've, we've done two. We did the first edition. We did a second edition, we've reprinted the second edition, and I think that'll probably be the end of it. Oh, <laughs> so so if you really want one, uh, or your dad wants one, or your <laughs> mum wants one, or your granddad who used to go to concerts, get them. It's a nice present. Get them, get them quick. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. Thanks very much, Barry. Okay. Thank, Thank you so much indeed. No problem.